Well, as we uh, continue to study through John's gospel, uh, we come to this section and, and we'll, set, we'll set the context in this way. I'll, I'll be honest, I was talking to, to Josh and Jason. This is such a loaded section of scripture um, and you know how difficult it is for me sometimes to take big sections, by that I mean these 15 verses that we're taking, and not go a little slower, but it's, it's imperative that we do just to fit it all together. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best here, and even, I'll even watch the clock this time. Um, but but this, is, this is huge stuff that's here for us, and, and it'll, be, it'll be good to study. We'll set the context in this way. Um, we are no doubt familiar with our regular need for clarification. Uh, we face this need in routine situations, so maybe uh, it's, a routine, uh, it's a situation uh, with a coworker where you're sharing responsibility for a project at work and some commitments have been made, but you need to clarify exactly what your part in that project is supposed to be. Uh, we need clarification in our working environments at times, and the need for clarification isn't just present in regular routine circumstances, uh, but we also can find ourselves needing clarification in extremely serious matters. It could be uh, may, a major financial decision, for example, or it might be something that, that would involve uh, a potentially uprooting family life and, and moving somewhere different. And, and we feel our deep need for clarification as it affects things that are very, very important in our lives. And, and that need for clarification can even be quite anxiety producing as we seek to make decisions and sort through all the details of what's going on. Uh, so we know what it is to face the routine need uh, to, to be able to see things clearer and have a better understanding, but we also know what it is to have a serious need for clarification at times. And in coming to the beginning of John chapter 3, um, if, we're, if we're to think in order of seriousness in John's gospel, we find ourselves as readers in very serious need of clarification at this point. And that need for clarification is around this whole notion of belief. We know belief in Jesus is John's central concern for us as his readers. John's goal is that we would be believing in Jesus so that the salvation life that can only be found in Jesus uh, can become ours. So believing in Jesus is John's priority. And at this point in the gospel, we can be excused for being a little angsty about this whole notion of belief because of where we left things last time. If you remember at the end of chapter 2, we were told about a group of people who believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Um, and, and as we worked through that section last time, we saw that what gives us some trouble in that chapter 2 passage is that earlier in chapter 1, verse 12, we were told that to those who believe in his name, he gives them the right to be children of God. So, so chapter 1, to those who believe in the name of Jesus, he grants his salvation benefit to them. But at the end of chapter 2, while the same kind of language is used, there were people who were believing in his name. But instead of giving them the right to be children of God, we're told Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. And we, and we were told in that situation why. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. So, so the apparent belief that John chapter 1 speaks about, which indicates true trust in the Lord Jesus that leads to life, Whatever kind of believing was going on with the people in chapter 2, it wasn't that kind of true belief because Jesus didn't commit himself savingly to them because he knew what was really going on inside them. 
And, and so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with a concerned need for clarification because there's nothing more important in John's gospel than believing in Jesus. In fact, we could say there's, there's nothing more important in the whole world than genuinely believing and trusting in Jesus. And it seems sometimes that belief is defunct. Right? Jesus knew the hearts of chapter 2 people and their trust in him was not complete. It wasn't the kind of belief that leads to life, that they were excited about the signs he was doing, but their belief wasn't saving belief. So what does that mean? Well, well, it means that we need John's help to understand things further. If there's a kind of belief that reflects genuine trust in the Lord Jesus, bringing us into the family of God, and there's a kind of belief that seems simply to look at Jesus because we like some of the big things Jesus does, but, but it's not the kind of belief that really trusts in him in a saving way. We have these two poles present, and with that being the case, there's nothing more important than understanding what makes the difference. What makes a difference between genuine saving faith in Jesus and this kind of superficial or incomplete, though somewhat interested kind of faith? We need clarification. And as we get into our passage today, it's exactly that kind of clarification that John provides for us. In fact, we mentioned this last time, that there's that strong text connection between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Of course, thinking there weren't chapter divisions in the original when John wrote this. But chapter 2, remember how it ends with John telling us that Jesus knows what's in men's hearts. Chapter 3 begins with the words, there was a man. So, so, so John, just in a literary way, uh, he's been sharing some heavy truth with us, and now he's connecting that to this instance in the public ministry of Jesus where, uh, where he's going to help make things clearer with regard to this man, this, this man who's going to, in a sense, exemplify at least part of what's going on with this chapter 2 uh, defunct belief. And, and as we look at this, of course, we can be helped by it, and, and really what's here by the end is, is something that is of, of extraordinary encouragement for us. When we, when we consider the significance of what it really means to believe. Um, so we'll look at the passage together, and we're going to start by taking verse 1 and maybe a little bit of verse 2 together under the heading, A Man of High Standing. So that's where we'll begin, A Man of High Standing. It'll be helpful to follow along again as we go through this just because there's, there's a lot to cover. But if you just look at verse 1, uh, we see we're introduced to this fellow by the name of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, uh, this man, he comes to Jesus by night, calls him rabbi, says he knows things, um, and Jesus has this interaction with him. So we have this man of high standing. Um, it's always a little bit intimidating to, to meet someone with an impressive list of credentials. I was talking with a friend this week who preaches with some regularity at a church full of PhDs in theology, and I thought to myself that that must be quite an intimidating audience week in and week out. Uh, to have all those PhDs and professors listening to your expositions. Hopefully they're a gracious group, but a room full of people with impressive credentials like that can be intimidating. Uh, and, and in the right situation, Nicodemus would be one of those kinds of people. Uh, he's an extremely credentialed person. So if you look at verse 1, uh, especially, uh, but also into verse 2, John manages to lay out quite the resume for Nicodemus in just a few short, a few short words. So let's look at this text and we'll notice a few things. First of all, this Nicodemus character, we're told he's a Pharisee. So at one level, we see him as an extremely moral figure. Uh, being a Pharisee at this time in Jewish history meant that Nicodemus is part of a group of, of 6,000 uniquely committed, committed men in Israel who take it as their primary responsibility to live out the law of God perfectly. 
In fact, the Pharisees took this so seriously that when we have a command in the Old Testament like keep the Sabbath day holy and refrain from working, the Pharisees not only pay attention to that command, but they t pay attention to the scribal teachings around that command recorded in a document called the Mishnah, which has over 60 pages of directives on how to make sure you keep the Sabbath day holy and not work. And then on top of that, the Pharisees also paid attention to the Talmud, which has an additional 156 pages about how you do those other 60 pages properly to make sure you're doing the commandment properly. Okay, so, so, so this leaves you uh, it, with not even tying a knot in a rope around a bucket to get water from your well on the Sabbath because tying knots, at least certain kinds of knots, was considered working. I mean, these were meticulous men in terms of dis determining not to violate the law of God. So the point being in all this, that when we're told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, we're being told that he belonged to an, an elite group of men, in a sense, committed to keeping every possible nuance of every possible directive that God gave through Moses in the first five books of the Bible. He's a, he's a Pharisee, and, and, and that means he's a very moral man, generally speaking, in the context of the day. And, and, and Nicodemus doesn't just have moral credentials here, but he's also a man who has some social standing and power. So he's a ruler of the Jews, John says. And this most likely means that, that he's one of the few Pharisees who are actually part of the Sanhedrin, which was something like a supreme court for the Jewish people uh, in, in Palestine. So he's a ruler of the Jews high moral character, high social position. Um, and, then, and then we also have a clue that he comes from a very well-to-do family because Nicodemus is a Jew. We know that because you have to be a Jew to be a Pharisee. But Nicodemus has a, a Greek name here, not a Hebrew name. And, and during this time, it was the most prominent Jewish families that would give their children both Hebrew and Greek names, because, of course, given the prominence of Rome, a Greek name helped you get business done if you were of Jewish descent seeking to do business in the in the Greco-Roman world. Another example of that is Paul, the Apostle Paul. Right? His name is Saul. He is an apostle to the Gentiles and regularly uses the Jewish or the, his, his Greek name, Paul, as he's doing that kind of work. So so you have this going on in prominent families. So, so that helps us indicate it helps indicate to us that Nicodemus isn't just a man of moral standing, not just a man of social and political power, but he's a man who comes from a, a well to do family. Um, and and he's a man of knowledge, which is no surprise given his status here. But it is worth pointing this out. Because not only does Nicodemus tell Jesus that he, you know, and those who are in his group knows things about Jesus in verse 2. So Nicodemus references his knowledge. Uh, but down in verse 10, Jesus actually refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. So if you look at verse 10, it, it's a definite article there. The CSB translates verse 10 with Jesus saying, are you a teacher of Israel? But A is an indefinite article. It's a definite article in the Greek. It's, it's tighter. Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. So, so, so he's like the lead PhD in theology and law and all things righteous for the Jewish population, if you like. He's, he's a learned man. So, so as this chapter opens, we meet Nicodemus, a man of high standing. He's moral. He's powerful. He's socially connected. He's knowledgeable. At least we're going to give him that he's knowledgeable for now. Um, but this Nicodemus is one who's well-credentialed. He's got it all together. Uh, we read these verses and we can't miss the glowing resume that John lays out for us here with regard to this man. He's a man of high standing. And with that, we also can't miss one tiny clue here that also tells us things may not be quite as glowing as they seem. 
So there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night. Now, now we might read that little timestamp and not think much of it. Except that practically, this indicates some, some need for sneakiness on the part of Nicodemus. He, he doesn't want to be seen by his other religious allies going to Jesus. Which makes sense because by the time we get to chapter 12, we're actually told that the Pharisees who were believing in Jesus, if that was found out, they were excommunicated from the synagogues uh, for, for that, for that uh, belief in Jesus. So, so he, he doesn't want to be seen by his other colleagues as he goes to Jesus. Uh, so he goes and visits him at night. Uh, and, and then figuratively, we also have to recognize every time night or darkness is used in John's gospel, it is connected strongly to a lack of righteousness. More precisely, darkness is connected to evil in John's gospel, which we actually even have at the end of John's comments in that section that we finished reading in verses 19 and 20. He brings up darkness again. People don't like the light. They like darkness where their deeds can be left unseen. All right. so, so Carson, he makes the comment in his commentary, getting at what John's alluding to here with his reference to Nicodemus coming at night. He says, Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. So there's a, a literary uh, message being sent here by John as he, as he includes this detail. Nicodemus, he's a man of high standing, a man of morals, a man of high position. But John's making sure we see all those externals aren't actually telling the whole story. There's, a, there's darkness here. And even as we think about this, this is such an appropriate commentary on the human condition. Even where there might be some level of interest in believing in Jesus, or, or if that's not there, if it's just a, a life cleaned up with everything in its proper and acceptable place on the outside. You know, my, my friends and co-workers, they all see me as such a reputable person, but, but that's not the main stuff that matters. There can be a lot going on on the outside that appears so commendable, but it's actually the darkness on the inside that, that is going to be what concerns Jesus which we know because of the rub back in chapter 2. The rub back in chapter 2 was not that these people were coming to Jesus and displaying something that didn't look congenial toward Jesus. They were coming to Jesus excited about the signs he was doing, externally looking like they were believing in him. But what is Jesus concerned with? Well, he knows what's going on inside them. There's a heart problem. He's, he's aware of what's going on inside. Not the externals that can look so good, but he knows what's going on on the inside, we need to have something changed in the darkness of what's not seen if we're going to be truly believing in Jesus in a way that leads to life. This is, this is what John is setting, up for, setting us up for here, which is just a constant reminder for us in the Christian faith because the Christian faith is not for the cleaned up on the outside people. That is not the Christian faith. It is for people who feel the darkness inside and long for life that only Jesus can bring. And so we have that framed right here from the very beginning. We're going to see it even more wonderfully when we get to the woman at the well in chapter 4. So we meet this man of high standing, but he comes at night. So there's something, something dark going on here. Uh, and then if we can take, uh, move on and take verses 2 to 13 together, where we see that this man of high standing, he's confronted by his deep deficit. He's confronted by his deep deficit. And we'll just walk through these verses, 2 to 13, and, and put this narrative together. So, so uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he comes privately in order to have a conversation that reflects some interest that's, that's present in Nicodemus and, and, and maybe in some of his circle of religious leaders. They've been talking. 
And Nicodemus comes and he says to Jesus, Rabbi. So he addresses him with the title of respect. He says, Rabbi, we know. So us religious leaders, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. So remember back in, in the end of chapter 2, we were told that during the Passover, Jesus had been performing signs and, and people were moved toward interest in Jesus by those signs. Now Nicodemus, as a main religious leader, maybe the main religious leader, he's coming to sort through exactly what's going on with the identity of Jesus. He's not sure exactly what to think about all of this. He's inclined toward Jesus in some way, it would seem. Um, and, and we can imagine Nicodemus' own line of thought. It, it, must have, it must have gone something like, I, I know most of the other leaders don't really like Jesus, but I need to figure out what's going on here. So I'm going to go at night and, and check, this, check this whole situation out. He must have come from God. He must be some kind of prophet figure to be doing the things he's doing. So, so I need to find out what this Jesus has to say for himself. That's, that's what would be going through Nicodemus's mind. We know you're a teacher come from God. There's something special about you. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus, it, it's, it's almost humorous. Nicodemus, so the big, powerful, knowledgeable, Ph.D., Supreme Court, socially connected ruler of the Jewish people comes and says to Jesus, we know you're a prophet sent from God. That's why you can do what you do. And Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you for noticing, Nicodemus. Man, I, I've known who you are. In fact, I've just been reading a number of your articles that you've published lately, and they're really good. And I've been looking forward to connecting with you. Schedules have been a little busy, but I'm so glad we can talk now. In fact, Nicodemus, do you remember that passage in Deuteronomy 18 that promised that God would one day send a better prophet even than Moses who would come for his people? As a matter of fact, Nicodemus, I'm that prophet and I can see you're a learned and moral and socially connected person. So why don't we sit down together, have a cup of coffee and you can tell me what you think about all this. That's not how Jesus responds. Nicodemus comes, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. And Jesus says, Actually, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, how wonderful it is to talk with a person of your reputation and caliber, Nicodemus. No, Jesus says, actually, what I'd like to tell you is that if you're really going to see the truth of God's rule and reign, you're dead inside and need to be born again. So, so right from the start, Jesus doesn't entertain Nicodemus' question about his identity. Instead, as one commentator put it, Jesus radically called into question Nicodemus' capacity to even speak about heavenly things at all. You want to talk about the things of God, Nicodemus? Why don't you just tuck your resume right back in your cloak? Because to start accurately comprehending the ways of God as he rules and reigns and redeems, a person must be born again. To which Nicodemus must have just stood there with his mouth open. What? But how did we get here? All I said was you're doing stuff that makes me think you're a special teacher from God. And you just told me that to truly see what's going on with the rule and reign of God, I have to be born again. What are we even talking about? It was basically what he says in verse 4. Nicodemus responds, probably still shaking his head. How can anybody be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Well, what are we even talking about here, Jesus? How did we get here? But you see, what's happening is Jesus is starting to reveal to Nicodemus, the man of high standing and many credentials, Jesus is starting to address the real need that Nicodemus has. And the real need that Nicodemus has is not to sort out Jesus according to human learning and understanding. The real need Nicodemus has is for new birth. He needs to be born again. Because as things keep going, Jesus not only proves further that instead of being in, in, a, in a position of high standing, 
Jesus is going to prove that Nicodemus is actually in a position of significant spiritual deficit. So Nicodemus, the man who knows things, can't understand this born-again language that Jesus is using. And quite frankly, it might sound a little strange to us too. What in the world are we talking about here, born again? And so Jesus continues to explain what he means. Verse 5, Jesus makes it clear that this new birth, which is critical and necessary, is also supernatural. Verse 5, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, we do remember that Nicodemus is well-versed in the Scriptures, so, so Jesus is aware of this. And, and that, that water and spirit language takes us back to Ezekiel 36, where we have uh, this water-spirit connection, where God is the one who promises to come and cleanse His people. That's the sprinkling with water imagery of Isaiah 36. And He's going to enliven them by His Spirit to cause them to walk in His way according to His statutes. So spirit and water speak to God's activity in, in, in cleansing us in Ezekiel 36. Carry that over, carry that over into Ezekiel 37. We remember where, where uh, the prophet speaks about dead bones that are given new life by the Spirit of God. So, so in verse 5 here, Jesus speaks of water and spirit, that, that metaphorical Old Testament picture of God's cleansing and renewing power coming and making us clean and making God's people animated with new life that's, that's there so we can live in a way that's faithful to Him. That's what new birth is, is this supernatural regeneration of the center of our personhood. Right? Dead bones come to life. It, the, the new birth is a life that comes from above as, as the Lord applies His cleansing and new life mercies drawing us out to see Him for who He is. Even the language that's used here, born again, that's a, that's a little bit of an ambiguous Greek phrase. Clearly, it means born again. That's how Nicodemus takes it. But it can also mean born from above. There's, there's a bit of a play on words there. This born again that we need is something that comes from God above who enters into the reality of our, of, of our lostness, our brokenness, our inability to save ourselves and gives us new life. So this new birth is supernatural which is exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians, isn't it? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God made us alive together with Christ. So Jesus is saying here, you must be born again by God's supernatural cleansing and renewing grace to see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is getting at. And, and Jesus starts to, to get at that fact uh, as, he, as he makes sure Nicodemus uh, sees where this comes into play in the scriptures, basically telling him, that he, that he should know this is coming. Nicodemus should be aware of this truth. It's in verse 7, Jesus says to him, don't be amazed when I say you must be born again. This isn't new stuff, Nicodemus. This is biblical revelation stuff that we're talking about. This is how things go in the kingdom of God. Ezekiel makes it clear we're dead bones that need God's new life. He makes it clear that we're stony hearts that need to be made flesh. We need to be regenerated, given new life from spiritual death in our sin and reborn into God's uh, family. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 8 that is, this, is, this isn't something we have any kind of human control over. He, in verse 8, there's actually a play on word, uh, the word spirit there in verse 8 because the Greek word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. So there's a play on words here too where in verse 8 we have the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Jesus is working this out for Nicodemus. In other words, this new birth that we need, it's not something conjured up, but, but it's an exercise of the sovereign Holy Spirit of God who comes in ways that we can't always know and we certainly can't manufacture. 
And while we can't always see where it comes from, this supernatural new birth, we can see its effect. The wind blows, Jesus says, and you don't see where it started or where it's headed, but you hear it. Or you look out at the trees, and you, and you can't see the wind blowing through the air, but you can see the leaves moving on the trees as the wind blows. You see the effect of the wind blowing through. So it is with the new birth the Spirit of God brings to our heart. The Spirit moves as He wills, and we see the evidence of that. Thinking along these lines, I heard one pastor in the Midwest uh, speaking about the people in his fairly large congregation. And he was talking about how he often wondered how many of them were really uh, Christian believers as, as opposed to those who just showed up on Sunday. It was something that bothered him uh, to a certain degree uh, because, of course, in the Midwest, there, things are so much different than, than they are here. And, and you just attend church because it's a cultural thing to do and it's a routine thing to do. It's much more of a norm. Um, and so you have a lot of people, especially in a big church, who may not really be born again in this sense, but they come and they sit politely and maybe like Nicodemus, they even ask some questions about Jesus from time to time. But this pastor was saying he can always tell when a person is born again because he'll look out and he'll notice that they may be sitting in the exact same place they've been sitting for a number of years, but all of a sudden they've started to sing. The wind blows and you don't know where from or where to, but you can see its effects. Sinclair Ferguson talks about something similar. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read to you what he says. He speaks of this, of this young man who came to his church and then after a while was converted. And, and this young man, he comes and he wants to meet with an elder. And he, and he says to the elder, I can't believe how much this church has changed within the last few weeks. The hymns are so lively now. The worship is so meaningful. And even the preacher is better. But, 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 of course, nothing's changed in the church. The young man has experienced new birth. The, the new birth is this supernatural thing that goes on where God enlivens our heart to recognize the things of his kingdom, the glories of Christ, and so on. So this new birth is supernatural. You can't conjure it. You can't plan it. You can't force it. You can't, you can't fake it. You can't earn it. The Spirit moves where he pleases, but you can see the effects. To which Nicodemus replies in verse 9, how can these things be? Still confusion. How can these things be? After all, to be a member of the kingdom of God for Nicodemus, that, that would have had something to do with all the rules he's been keeping. All the status that he's been building. After all, he's come from a prominent Hebrew family, no doubt. In Nicodemus' mind, uh, Jesus talking in new birth terms here, well, it seems to be uh, confusing him all along the way. The notion itself would not have been totally foreign to Nicodemus. Because this new birth picture... Um, would, would be something that, that Nicodemus would be familiar with just through rabbinical writings, particularly as they relate to those who were not ethnic Jews but wanted to convert to Judaism. Those kind of people in rabbinical writings were referred to oftentimes as being born again into the Jewish community, into the, into the community of faith as they went through a ritual process of converting. And of course, it wasn't just the rabbis who spoke like this. That's why we read Psalm 87 for our call to worship this morning. The psalmist looked forward to a time when people who were not Jews, like even Babylonians and Philistines, so the enemies of God's people, those, there would come a day when those people born in places like Babylon and, and Egypt, Rahab is there in the psalmist, a way that Isaiah speaks about Egypt. So, so people born in these foreign places, what would they be? Well, they would be established by God born in Zion. 
so, so born in Babylon, but reborn in Zion. It's as if they're, they're born again in the capital city of the kingdom of God. That's pointing forward to the gathering in of Gentiles to God's people. Rabbinical literature reflected that to some degree with regard to Gentiles. But that's not for Jews. Or so Nicodemus thought. Nicodemus would think very clearly, that is not for, I don't need that because of who I am. My status, my family, my lineage. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a ruler of God's people right now. I'm a keeper of the law. I don't need this new birth business as far as, as, far as being brought into the family of God. I'm in the family of God. So Jesus goes through all this pointing back to Ezekiel, making it clear that it's not just Gentiles who need to be made new. All people are like dead men's bones until the Spirit of God comes and cleanses us and regenerates our hearts to see the kingdom of God and the effect is evident. But Nicodemus doesn't see it. Verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus rebukes him in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Remember how Nicodemus started by saying, we know about you, Jesus. We know. Jesus flips things here. Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? And then Jesus uses his own plural in verse 11. We speak and we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. And then Jesus goes on to speak about how only an eyewitness to heavenly matters, namely Jesus, the Son of Man, is qualified to speak about these things authoritatively. The we in Jesus' mind in verse 11 uh, must be the divine Trinitarian we as God the Son revealed in the flesh is speaking on behalf of God the Father and the Spirit revealing what must take place in our hearts as we're rightly understanding what the Scriptures have, have uh, revealed to us. And so in all this, there's a lot here. In all this, uh, we, we, we see so many things, but, but Jesus is making it plain to Nicodemus that while Nicodemus may think that he knows from this authoritative position, well, well, Nicodemus may even have that prominent position of being the teacher in Israel, Nicodemus, in the end, is actually only serving as an object lesson illustrating his own need. Humanly speaking, Nicodemus checks all the boxes, religious and otherwise, but to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is proving his need because he keeps not getting it. How can these things be? I don't see what you're speaking about here, Jesus. Even, even in his lack of understanding, Nicodemus is proving Jesus' words are true. Nic Nicodemus has a deficit. He must be born again because he's not catching on to the truth that Jesus is revealing. So Nicodemus comes in the night, says to Jesus, we know about you and I'd like some further clarification. Jesus says, actually, that's not your need. If you're going to believe in a way that leads to life, you must be born again. It's one thing to be intrigued by signs. It's another thing to be granted a new heart and spiritual life from God. And that puts us back to the beginning where we get some of the clarification that we need. There is a kind of superficial interest in the things of Christ that might lead to excitement about some things seen or experienced. But that's not genuine belief. That's chapter 2 stuff. Darkness still in the hearts. What must happen for us to believe in a way that leads to life is the cleansing power of the Spirit of God must come and make our dead hearts alive to the glories of Christ and His saving purposes. It's not anything we bring. Isn't that back to John chapter 1? To all who did receive Him. He gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name who were born. How? Not of natural descent, Nicodemus, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. 
Jesus is saying that the real thing Nicodemus needs to be considering in his extraordinary, is, is his extraordinary deficit, recognizing that he must be born again. So speaking about that one line from Christ, you must be born again, something repeated three times here by Jesus, Leon Morris makes this comment. He says, in one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. And so must we. Which on the one hand is very good news. It's very good news because we feel our inability to make ourselves new. Even to try to live up to all the rules with total perfection like Nicodemus would have sought to do. Even that is so immediately discouraging because I know my frailty and I know my folly. It's good news that God's kingdom is for those God makes new on the inside. I need a God like that. That's good news. But it's also kind of scary. Let me read you this comment by one scholar. He says this. It is the perennial heresy of the human race to think that by our own efforts we can fit ourselves for the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it clear that it is impossible to fit oneself for the kingdom. Rather, it is necessary to be completely renewed, born anew by the power of the Spirit. These solemn words forever exclude the possibility of salvation by human merit. Our nature is so gripped by sin that an activity of the very Spirit of God is a necessity if we are to be associated with God's kingdom. I mean that's deep. But it, but it is just that plain. Unless God in his mercy reaches down. And breathes life by his creative. And recreating spirit. To my dead cold heart. I will not truly believe and be saved. He must move upon my deadness. My lostness and rebellion and sin. And make me alive again. And while there's encouragement in the fact that God's initiating grace is this way, like, like we said, there's also concern here. Because I want to take care of that salvation myself. You know, I want to make sure. I want to do what must be done to check the boxes and make sure it's all buttoned down just right. But I can't do it. You can't do it. Nicodemus couldn't do it. And that's scary. And so where does that leave us? Where does Jesus leave Nicodemus here? Does he end with the full stop? You don't get it, Nicodemus. Conversation over. Is that the end of the matter? No, look at verses 14 and 15. Nicodemus, who's a man of high standing, has been confronted by his deep deficit. And in verses 14 and 15, the place he's left, what he has left to do, is simply be pointed to Jesus and trust in him. You see this? So, so knowing Knowing that Nicodemus, you're looking at verses 14 and 15, knowing that Nicodemus is, is a man of the scriptures to a certain degree, he would have known his Bible, even if he's not getting it right. Knowing that, Jesus uh, ends up giving Nicodemus his very plain picture from Numbers 21. Uh, where in Numbers 21, the Israelites have violated God in the desert again. They've been grumbling against God and against Moses once again. And the Lord sends poisonous snakes into their midst as judgment. And as those Israelites desire to be saved from that just judgment, they call out to God. And God tells Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And whoever looks at the snake will recover and live. They'll find life there. And it's with this picture that Jesus concludes his dialogue with Nicodemus. He says, in effect, that just like the Israelites were saved when they looked at that snake, for all who look at me and believe, eternal life will be there. Salvation will, will come to them. We can't know how the Spirit moves in hearts. We can't save ourselves. But for our part, here's where everything ends. This is where everything is driving. Here's what we're called to do. Look to Jesus. He's the one 
who will be lifted up on the cross to purchase the new birth purity that we need. He's the one who will rise again, defeating death, purchasing the eternal life we need. We might not understand the fullness of the ways God works, and thank goodness because he wouldn't be God if we could understand it. Our job is not to be Nicodemus and always be the one who knows. Our job is to humble ourselves, feel our helplessness and need, and look to the one who is lifted up on the cross to save us. You must be born again. What does that mean for you? Well, well, it means everything. And if you're wondering if the Spirit has so moved in your heart, we test it by this desire. I want to look to Jesus and be saved. That's what born again people do. I want to look to Jesus and be saved. That's the belief that saves. That's the belief that only God can work in our hearts. And that's the belief that we exercise from a posture of thanksgiving and grace. So here we have a man of high standing confronted by his deficiency and directed to look to Jesus, which is exactly the gospel message we all need to hear. I feel like I'm fine in and of myself. The gospel comes and tells me, actually, I'm much more lost than I ever thought I was. But in Jesus, there's life to be found that's everlasting as I look to him. And that's exactly what we're compelled to do from this passage, not least of all when we get into the next section where John tells us exactly why Jesus is the one we ought to be looking to. After all, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him won't perish, but will be saved. This is why we look to Jesus. So, so all this ends with us simply having the confession, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that you would regenerate our hearts, uh, keep regenerating our hearts, keep making us new, Lord. We, uh, we know that it is by your power we not only come into the Christian life, but continue to persevere in the Christian life, and we're dependent upon you for that. Have our, have our hearts turned toward the Lord Jesus, his rule and reign, the kingship of Christ, uh, the, sal the salvation and redemption that's there because he was the one who was lifted up on the cross and saved us. Uh, please help us be trusting in him this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.